All right, good morning. So we were um, singing that last song, and and it reminded me of something that I heard yesterday. We went to a a conference yesterday, and this guy, um, his name is Jonathan Edwards, so what a more fitting name for a preacher than Jonathan Edwards, because it's just, you know, that's a... I'm pretty sure he was named that for a reason. His parents probably said, our last name is Edwards, let's name him a powerful name. Because if you guys don't know, Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in the, I believe, 17, late 1700s, early 1800s, and it was, he was a revivalist. And this guy was speaking yesterday, and he said, he was talking about hearing the voice of God, hearing what God has to say. And what he said was, we need to hear God's voice, recognize his voice, and follow his voice. You know, a lot of times it's hard for us to hear God's voice. We get in the busyness of life. We get in um, turmoil, different things that come into life, and it's hard for us to hear God's voice. But God says I, he's always present, always with us, always willing to speak. It's just we have to quiet ourselves and say, you know what? What's God's voice saying? What is he saying? But not just hearing his voice. Once we hear his voice, that's, that's the first step, is just to understand who he is and, and to listen to him and to hear what he has to say. But then he went on, he goes, we need to recognize his voice. Not just hear his voice, but recognize what he is saying with his voice and what he's, what he's saying when he speaks to us. Recog- learn how to recognize when he's speaking to us. A lot of times you're going to have voices that are speaking into you, but you need to be, be able to recognize God's voice. Recognize when God is speaking to your life and recognize when something else is trying to speak into your life. But he goes, the most powerful part of it is when you follow God's voice. You hear him, you recognize what he's saying, and you say, and he says, go do this. He goes, that's the most powerful part, is when you're obedient and following what he is telling you to do. And the, that song was talking about the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, being able to understand when the Holy Spirit is working in you, understand when the Holy Spirit's moving on you, and just follow and flow with what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Whether he's telling you to go do something, or whether he's telling you to be still, be quiet, and just wait on him like Elijah did, and a lot of different voices. Elijah's waiting in this cave, and wind storms, and and everything rocks, and and everything comes, but, and he thinks, oh, is this God? And he goes out and listens. Nope, God's not there, but God shows up in that still, small voice, and it's being able to recognize him, realize who's speaking to, or hear him, recognize his voice, and follow what God is telling us to do, and being aware of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do something. So, I was really encouraged by that message yesterday, and I started thinking about, and I've been kind of doing some studies and reading different things, and we look at the life of Jesus, and we see Jesus' life was like no other life. He had a very short life, 33 years old. Um, His ministry was basically just under three years before he was um, crucified. But we look at his life, and Jesus did something completely different than the leaders of that day did. Jesus operated in a different mode than the Pharisees and Sadducees. You guys ever, anybody been watching that AD um, show that's on NBC? It's uh, basically the book of Acts, and further it goes into the disciples and the Apostle Paul and stuff like that. Okay, nobody's been watching it. Well, I've been watching it, it's been pretty good. And it's not all, you know, factual. Some of it is just kind of storylines made up, but a lot of the, the, the things that we've read in the Bible are in there, and it's very cool how the presence of the Holy Spirit comes in, and, they, and they, the, it shows the 
kind of a, a symbol of the, of the wind coming and the Holy Spirit kind of resting on these guys, and then they realize that the Holy Spirit is directing them, and they do things. But Jesus taught them how to recognize it. He taught them how to look, different, look differently at the world. Uh, one of the, the characters in that show and one of the people in the Bible is Caiaphas. And there's not a lot about him in the Bible, so the show kind of makes up a storyline along there. But Caiaphas was one of the, the head leaders of the Sanhedrin, um, one of the, basically the high priest, and he operated in a completely different mode as Jesus. He was following God. He was serving God. And he loved God. And Jesus came in, said he's the son of God, and he operated different. He, he didn't understand why Jesus was operating that way. Jesus operated in a way that he loved unlovable people. He saw something in people that the leaders of that day didn't see. He saw something in people with leprosy and unclean people and people who were uh, prostitutes and tax collectors that the people of that day didn't see. He saw something in them that those people didn't like. Their mindset was, we love God and we stay away from anything that doesn't have to do with God. Anything that looks evil, sounds evil, does evil things, we're going to stay away from and we cast out and we throw out. But Jesus started something. He started a revolution. He started something that it fueled, it was fueled by love. Not just law, not just the way that the, the book of Moses tells us to in the Old Testament of what to do on how to stone people and everything like that. Jesus started loving people, taught his disciples how to love people the way that God loves people. Jesus had every opportunity to become angry with the people that he ministered to and the people that were around him. If you look at his disciples, if you ever read any of the Gospels, how dumb his disciples were at some point. Like one of a couple of them go, hey, Jesus, when you are in heaven next to your father, can we sit next to you on, by your throne? I'm going to take a look at that. Oh, yeah, it's raining. Um, so Jesus, he's got some knucklehead disciples at, at first. He's training them. He's teaching them how to operate. And they're like, you know what, God? We love you and you're awesome. But you know what? Can you call down thunder and fire on this city and destroy them all because they, they rejected you. It's just rain. Yeah. It's, not, no, it's just rain. Don't worry. So God, you know, Jesus is like, okay, you love me, you love God, but you want, us, you want me to call down fire and destroy this town because they haven't accepted everything that I've told them to. So Jesus has the ability to be angry. Jesus had the power and authority to call angels, call uh, down fire, whatever he wanted to, upon those people, upon that town, but he didn't. Because he was fueled and he was motivated by another motive, and that was love. He had the right to be angry with them. There were so many times that they, they would come into a town and they'd be like, we can't, please leave, we, we can't do this. We, we, you know, everything's, we know what you're doing, but what you're doing is causing problems in this town. He was rejected in his own hometown because they just said, oh, it's, it's the son of a carpenter. Oh, this is Mary and Joseph's son. So he could have gotten angry and said, you know what, boom, you're done. Could have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, everything is destroyed, but he didn't. He paid the ultimate price for them. Whether they accepted him or rejected him, he paid the ultimate price for them. He went to the cross, died on the cross for them. 
the people who were putting him on the cross, he died for them. He had the right to be angry, but he didn't. As Christians, it calls us to be like Christ. As Christians, it calls us to be like him, follow his footsteps, follow his teachings, follow the way that he operated when he was on earth. So as Christians, our love for people should grow over time. Our love for lost people, the people around us, family, friends, acquaintances, should grow over time. Now, that can be hard sometimes. If our theology doesn't continue to push us and teach us and cause us to love people more and more, we need to rethink what we're being taught and what we're believing. If our theology is, you know what, they're a sinner, let's cast them off, what have we become like? Our theology has become like the Pharisees and the Sadducees of 3,000 years ago. You're unclean, you're not worthy to be around God, move away. Get out of the way. If you look into the story of Jesus walking through towns, walking through Jericho, walking through every towns, there was these lines of sick people, uh, leprosy, uh, physical issues, mental issues that Jesus would heal because they weren't fit to be in the city. And most of the time when you hear about it, it talks about them at the gates of the city, outside of the city, because they would beg for money. But Jesus would heal them and say, go back into the city, go to the temple. Go to the temple and show the high priest what has been done. Jesus would heal people outside of the the realm of, this is our accepted realm. So it would be like this carpet here. You know what, the Pharisees and Sadducees would be like, okay, yep, you're good enough. You can stand in this box. You can stand and you're worthy of being around us because you're worthy of being around God. But if you were a prostitute, if you were a tax collector, if you committed adultery, you're outside of this box. And you know what? You have, God hates you. God hates you. Move away. You need to repent. It wasn't about reconciliation to God. It was about we are holy, we are upright with God, and you're not, so stay away. But Jesus said, you know what? Hey, let's go have dinner together. Jesus said, hey, oh, there's a tax collector, there's a prostitute, and, you know, there's an adulteress. Let's bring him in. Let's all have dinner. And they hated him because of that. They hated him because he loved people enough to accept them in, no matter what their faults, no matter what their their disabilities, abilities, whatever it was, no matter what their sin was, he brought them in and said, you know what, I'm going to have dinner with you. I'm going to bring you in because I love you. One of the most influential women in the Bible was a prostitute. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. She was started following Jesus, and the amount of people that she ministered to was incredible. She was one of the few people that, or a few women that is talked about in the Bible that was very, very evangelistic. They believed that she was actually the woman at the well, and that she went back into the city and brought family, friends, and said, this is the Messiah. When it comes to other people, we, are, we need to be growing in love for them, no matter where we're at in our life, no matter what situation, where we're at um, in our spiritual walk. We need to be growing in our love for people. So, 
are we growing in love for people as, as Christians? Are we growing in love for people, the people that are lost, the people that are not lost? Is humanity as a whole, are we growing in love for them or are we segregating themselves? I was, um, Sarah and I were on Facebook and this is one person that we have on Facebook and all they speak about is God hates this, God is this, people are this. And it starts to remind me of where did the love of God go in this person who says they're a Christian? Love this person, very close to this person, but the speech that comes out of their, their mouth says, I don't grow in love for people. I grow in my desire to be right and say the word of God is right and, and push you away from me. When you become right, you can come and be my friend. But until you believe what I believe, stay away. And that's wrong because Jesus said, whether I agree with you, whether you're Republican, Democrat, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, whatever it is, I still love you. You have an opinion. It's a valid opinion. It may not be my opinion, but I love you. And you can sit with me. You can eat with me. And I will love you the same as I love the person who agrees with my theology the same way. Jesus didn't care about their, their political views. He didn't care about their, their um, whatever it was. He didn't care about that. Jesus loved them no matter where they were at. Tax collectors were hated. And he said, you know what? I'm going I'm to be a, a friend of yours. I'm going to be your friend, and you're going to be my friend. But have our hearts become hardened and callous towards people? Are our hearts becoming so callous towards people that we just kind of like, well, I go to church, and if you want to come to church, you can come to church, but I, I don't really want to deal with you outside of the church box. I don't really want to deal with your problem. I don't really want to deal with your sin. And I never saw anywhere in the Bible that Jesus said, I don't want to deal with your sin. Jesus wasn't afraid of sin. We shouldn't be afraid of sin. Jesus wasn't afraid of, uh, of opposing political views and opposing um, cultural views. He just accepted people. If you look at the people that followed him, they lived completely different lives than, ever, than Jesus did. But what he did is he loved them, and then they came to him and said, we will follow you. Tax collectors, prostitutes, heathens, adulterers, adulterers. He loved them enough to bring them in, and they said, we're going to follow you. You guys ever been to an art gallery? We went to the Muskegon Art Museum a couple years ago with Layla, and it's, it's very cool. You're walking around, there's just some very cool sculptures, and then there's some very... Um, unique paintings, there's a photography, there's a, a couple places I was covering the kid's eyes, like, you can't see that, I'm like, uh, I should have put a curtain over that, I'm like, this kid is tw- uh, 10, you can't see that. Um, but we went to an art museum, and we are standing in front, of, I'm looking at this art, and I'm like, I'm like, Lana can do that. I'm like, it's just garbly, goopish of, of, you know, it looked like they just squirted a bunch of paint on it, and I'm not, we, I, I, you look at it, and you're like, what in the heck were they doing? Like, I see art in the hallway above lockers like that. And I'm like, I'm like, why, what is this? But we don't understand the artist's thoughts when, we, when they create it. We don't understand where they're coming from when they create it. We don't understand their story. We don't understand their heart and the life that they've lived when they've created that. We have our perception of what art is. For me, it's photography. Regular art, mm, okay, yeah. You got a painting of a cabin. There's this one artist that paints a lot of cabins and, and you know, different things like that, and that's cool. I love photography as art. So my uh, perception of art 
at an art gallery is like, that one's cool because I can understand it, it's easy, but I'm not understanding the artist's heart behind it. I have my own perception of what art would be, as we all would. We could all walk into an art gallery, look at one picture and go, oh, I get this out of it, I get this, I have this, I'm getting this. This is just so, everybody, someone would be like, oh, this just impacts me, another person would be like, they would look at it and just keep walking. But other people would stand and stare at it and look at it and go, this is powerful. The same way as we form an opinion of art, we form a, an opinion of creation, of God's creation. And I'm not talking animals and plants and everything like that. I'm talking about humanity. We form our own opinions of humanity the same way we form our own opinions of art. What we've never done is stop to hear the narrative of the artist. If we could grab the artist in that art gallery and say, what were you thinking? What were you doing when you created this piece, this sculpture, this painting, this, this metal sculpture, whatever it is, what were you thinking when you did this? And you could hear their story, and you could listen to what they were saying. They, it could have been an emotional time where they lost someone, or they went through trouble or trial, and they said, man, when I was just doing this, or I was joyful, and I created this. And this is what, what the, the expression of my joy or my sorrow or my pain, this is how I released it onto this canvas or this pottery or this metalwork or whatever it was. This is how, or this is what I was thinking when I was creating that. We hear the artist, we understand what they're doing, we understand what they're saying. So the same goes with God. We must understand and embrace God's perspective and his heart and his mindset of what he was doing when he created us in order to embrace what he was doing. We have to embrace his narrative, what he was doing, what he was thinking before we can get a right perspective. If you have an understanding of something, if you're looking at something you don't know what it is and somebody explains something to you, then you look at it and you go, oh, totally get it. But until we understand God's perspective of humanity, we can't form our own opinion. We all form our own opinions. Well, this person or this family or this person or this, this leader or whatever, we all form our own opinions of people but we don't know the full story. We don't know the heart behind it. We don't know the perspective. We don't know their emotion. We don't know their pain, their joy. Whatever it is, we don't understand what it is. We don't understand. We, we look at people and go, why would you do that? But we don't know their heart behind it. We don't understand their emotion. We don't understand their pain, their joy. And we go, why would you do this? Why would you create this? Why would you do this? But we don't understand their emotion. We look at it and go, why? Why would, you, why would you do this? But we don't have their perspective. We don't have their narrative of what they're doing, why they're doing it, and the heart behind it. You guys turn to Genesis for me. Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26. And then... God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves and creeps on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth. Every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also, every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to every thing that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every herb, excuse me, green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything he made, and indeed it was very good. So on the evening and the morning of the sixth day, and then after that he rested. So, God did something so unique and so different in creation. He created, basically he created, I'm going to create the earth, I'm going to create the, the stars, the sun, the moon, I'm going to create, uh, form the oceans, I'm going to form everything. But then he gets to man. After he's created everything. He goes, I've created everything, and out of what I've created, I'm going to create man. So he takes the dust of the earth, and I... I picture the same way that, in my mind, and this is just me, but I picture the same way, there's always that story about Jesus taking and writing in the sand when they wanted to stone that woman. I just imagine God kneeling down, grabbing the earth, and just pushing it together. And then speaking forth. And making us. But he says, I'm going to make man in, my, in our image and our likeness. He did something so different that had, been done, that had not been done with all creation. He made the last part of creation in his image, in his likeness. That means we are image bearers of God. We look like God. We don't look exactly like God, but our spirits are created in his image. So, the word image, you guys know what that means, right? Well, if you don't, I'll explain it. Basically, it means resemblance or representative. So our spirits represent God. They resemble God. We look like our Father. We look like our Heavenly Father who created us. The flesh, that's just a, trans- that's just a temporary thing. God doesn't even look at that. Because if he, if he was really focused on our flesh, he would have made us all look the same, but he's not. He's focused on the inward man. He's focused on what's inside of us instead of what we look like and how we look, how we comb our hair, don't comb our hair, shoes we wear, flip-flops, whatever. He's not focused on that. That's a temporary fading thing. He looks at us and says, I created you in my image. You're my son. You're my daughter. You look like me. And then likeness means to model, shape, or fashion in a manner. So he said, I'm going to make man in in our likeness. So he fashioned us, he molded us, and modeled us after him to look like him. And he gave us dominion over the earth. Revelations 12, 7 through 9. I'm not going to read it for you, but basically it says a war broke out in heaven. This is when the devil rebelled. And he rebelled against God, and a war broke out, and they cast him down. And there was no pl- it says there was no place for him in heaven, so what did he do? He cast him down into earth. 
So Satan's job was to worship God, to, wor- to lead worship in worshiping God. But he got prideful and got arrogant and said, you know what, I need to be worshipped. So there was a war, they're fighting, and a third of the angels were cast down with him, and God put them on earth. That's why God said, I'm making man and woman in my image and my likeness, and I'm going to give you dominion over the earth. He said, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. Because what had happened was, earth was free for Satan to do what he wanted. And God said, I'm going to put man here to take dominion back from him and bring it back to me. God told Adam and Eve to take dominion. He's giving us the authority. He's given us full permission to have authority, but we had to take it. God designed us to be partners with him. He didn't design us just to design us and throw us out and say, okay, everything just goes and whatever happens, happens. He designed us to partner with him so we could take dominion of earth. He designed us to be a partner with him from the beginning of time when he created us to the end. So, the moment of creation proves that people have the ability to do good. We look at people and say, well, uh, sin, their sin is more important than anything else. We, we, we tend to get so caught up on the sin that we forget about the person. But God created humans to do good, whether they have a relationship with them or not. We're made in his image. He created us. He's a good God. If he's made us in his likeness and his image, if he's a loving God, a kind God, a generous God, he's made us to be in his image. So, sin comes into the world. What happens? Are we still made in his image? Yes, we're still made in his image. What sin has done is it's distorted it, distressed it, perverted what God has done. It, is, it has put a veil between us and God, saying, you know what, his image bearers, who is us, are still looking like him, but sin has distorted how we see God. But it has not diminished our capacity to do good. Our capacity to do good is because we are created in his image. Turn to Romans 1 for me. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For it is, for it is, Excuse me. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and is written, "The just, the just shall live by faith." God created us to live a lifestyle with Him. God created us to be with Him. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive. 
if we are confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive. Basically what's happening is, is this. Is when we confess our sins, the veil is removed. The, sin, the veil of sin is removed from us, our eyes, our minds. And what happens is God says, you know what? Now you can see me in my glory. Now you can see the glory of God. Now you can see me for who I am. Living by faith opens our eyes to the righteousness of God, to the heart of God, to understand his heart for us and his heart for other people. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. But it doesn't say there's no, none good, no, not one. Because no matter if you are far from God or close to God, we all have the capability to do good. I, there's so many atheists out there that do good, but are they right with God? No, it doesn't make them right with God. It makes them... Their ability to do good still means that they have the image of God in them. They were still created, whether they believe in God or not. Whether they accept Him, reject Him, whatever it is, they're still made in His image. They still want to do good because the heart of the Father is to do good for people around Whether we're saved or not, whether we're right with God, far from God, we all have the ability to do good. But it doesn't make us right, righteous with God. It doesn't make us right with God. We were created in his image to do good. We were created in his image to take dominion over the earth, to destroy the works of the devil, to bring hope and to do good in the earth. So we look at people and we say, even though sin came into the world, it didn't get rid of our image, of the image that we are created in. Sin didn't destroy the image that we were created in. It dilutes it, makes it, you know, when we're, sin separated us from God. He said, yeah, you're made in my image. But the sin is what separated us from it. It diluted the way that we thought, think, the way that we act. And so what happens is, is we do good, but we're not doing it for the, for the one who we were created for. We do it for the people, and we're like, yeah, I feel, I feel great when I do good. But God says, if you follow me, then you do good. You're doing it for the right reasons. And I'm not saying if we do good and it's not for the right reasons that it's not helpful. But what I'm saying is is God has designed us to follow him and take dominion over the earth and do good. The more that we become aware of the image of God, of who he's created us to be, the more we become disgusted with sin. We start to see people, not as sinners, but as image bearers of God, as people who are created in God's image and say, you know what, I love you. Your sin is, is wrong. It dilutes who you are. It takes you away from who you, are, from who you were created to be, but I still love you. We stop seeing people as sinners. We stop seeing people as Pharisees, like the Pharisees did, as unclean, unworthy, unholy, and we start to see them as God's image bearers and that God loves them and wants to reconcile to them.
I was going to use an illustration today, but I chose not to. But imagine a cup of water. You got a couple, you got two cups of water. And I go out, I was going to do this, but I didn't know if it was a fire alarm or not. I was going to take, go out with a spoon and take two, two tablespoons of dirt and mix it together. And then set it on the table and say, okay, if all you know is unclean water, that's, what you, that's the paradigm you live in. You live in an unclean, all you know is unclean water. It's a cup of dirty water and that's all you know. There's, there's people in this world that all they know is a cup of dirty water and they wait for everything to settle to the bottom and then drink off the top because that's all they know. That's the world they live in, the paradigm, the mindset they live in. But what happens is, is when you give them a cup of clean water, they go, what is this? Because they don't know what it looks like. When you give them that cup of clean water, something that previously did not exist now rocks their world. And they're like, wait a minute, what? It's like when you put a well in the middle of Africa and they can pump fresh clean water instead of going to the river and dredging buckets to get water and then have to filter it and filter it. Have you ever watched them put in a well and, and they start pumping the water out and people are just going crazy? Because what it does is it changes their world. It changes the paradigm, the mindset they live in because what they didn't have and didn't know existed or could be gotten is now in their hands. When we have a cup of clean water, we can look at the cup of dirty water and go, this is actually an inferior version. It's water, don't get me wrong. Like I was talking to um, a gentleman who is working on our road. They're digging up our road and and um, they found this old sewer pipe running, and he's like, I'm like, that's kind of gross. He's like, yeah, but you know that uh, sewer water, when it comes out of your septic, after it goes through all the, the different things, by the time it gets through the sand, it's drinkable. I said, yeah, but I wouldn't drink it. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, if you could take, go to, go to your hose, turn on the hose and fill up a cup of water, or go to your, your septic and wait till the sand and then fill it up and go, which one would you drink? It, it really, what it does is it makes us look and say, this is an inferior version of something that is pure. God created us without blame, without blemish, without any spot, without anything. He created us that way. But sin brought us into the dirty water. But when we start to see people as clean, when we start to see people without sin, and we start to change the, and the world starts to change, they look at that, that old life, they look at that, dirt, that cup of dirty water and go, mm, no. So when we become aware of God's presence, when we become aware of what his image is, we start to become aware of something beyond that. We stop looking past the dirt. We stop looking at that dirty water and say, I see something beyond that dirty water. I see something that was created by God and that has the ability to be purified. I see something that can be cleaned. Once we become aware of God's presence and his image of who he created us in, we start to see people in his likeness. We start to see people more in his likeness than the, than the lifestyle they live, than the, the views they have, the political views, the whatever it is. We start to see them 
in more of his likeness than anything else. If we started to look at people instead of look at people like God looks at them and say, this is your image, instead of looking at people like that, or instead of looking at people for what they believe, how they act, and everything like that, we can look at them and say, you're made in God's image. We would see them more clearly. And we would say, there is value there. It's not a cup of dirty water. It's a cup of clean water. (coughs) It's our responsibility to see people the way they were created as image bearers. The sin is just a, 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 temp, is a, is a, a byproduct of, of, of sin. Their sin, that, that can be worked on. But we've got to quit looking at people for their sin. We've got to start looking at them as an image bearer of God. As someone that was made in God's image. We need to be more preoccupied with sowing into their lives and speaking into their lives and helping them than looking at their faults, being critical of their sin. We need to start focusing on their image-bearing presence. Look at people through the lens of the artist. Look at people through the eyes of the creator. Full explanation of who the artist is what their intent was, what their thought was. Once we understand why God created us in his image, we can start looking through the filter and say, this is why we were created. This is why that person was. Their, their faults, their sins, we don't look at those. We look, at, we look past that. We can look at them and see the work that they were intended for. God intended all of us for good work. God intended us all to do good. So we have to look at it and say, you know what, I'm going to look through the the lens of God, look the way he sees them and say, you know what, I see them as an image bearer. I see them as he is loved. He loves them. He wants the good for them and wants to be, have a relationship with them. Let's pray.